Welcome, welcome back, everybody. This is Inside White Center. My name is Frank Johnson. Good morning. This is Lisa Wynn. And uh, we are back again with another episode. Lisa, how you doing? You had a good week? Yes, I did have a good week. Um, Lunar New Year's is coming up. Oh, yes, that's so right. So lots of uh, cleaning, um, celebrating with family, preparing foods. Um, I know that every Asian household is cleaning this weekend. Uh, no, some one of my coworkers uh, brought in the. Pantek. Uh, yeah, yes, thank you, thank you. So pantek is a traditional, um, like sticky rice roll that has uh, mung bean and pork, and it's a very like time-consuming process. Mm-hmm. I know that they boil it for hours, um, but it's delicious. You mm-hmm. can fry it, you can eat it fresh. Um, but yeah, it's good. Frying it with a little bit of a sauce on there is like my jam. I'm, uh, I'm about it. I'm about How are you, it. Frank? I'm okay. Uh, long week at work. Um, the but these sunsets that I've been—I was telling you guys earlier—I got these big windows, and that's just been really making me feel good about uh, <laughs> about uh, just how hard the week has been. So glad it's the weekend. Glad we're back. And glad we're here. And another special guest. Yeah. <sighs> Um, For folks tuning in again, thank you. Um, Again, we are uh, Inside White Center. We aim to be the collectors and documentators of uh, the stories of White Center. Uh, We hope to inspire and um, highlight voices in the community. Uh, Today we have a special guest. Do you want to introduce him? Sure. Uh, We have Patrick Robinson here with us. uh, He is the creator and uh, the innovator of the West Side... Seattle.com. Seattle.com. And that is the blog, correct? It is a website. Mm -hmm. It's not really in a blog format. Okay. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So it's like that. But it's a news website if you prefer to think of it that way. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, Tell us uh, who you are. uh, What's your connection to White Center? How long have you been doing this for? Well, 1952, when I was two years old, my dad bought the White Center News. And it was located at 9811 17th Southwest in the building that's now been removed after a series of fires here recently. But he bought the White Center News in that year, and then in 1954, he started the Federal Way News, and then uh, in 1975, he bought the West Seattle Herald. We merged the West Seattle Herald and the White Center News uh, in 1976, I think, and then we bought the Highline Times in 1982, and the Ballard News Tribune in 1999, and all of those comprised uh, the Robinson newspapers, which, and newspapers, of course, have fallen on a little harder times <laughs> in light of the Internet. Yeah. But we uh, uh, established a website uh, for all the papers in 1999 that year, and then they've since diverged into individual sites, and then we've remerged them again into a website called westsideseattle.com. We still cover news from Ballard, out to SeaTac, so it's it's quite a coverage area, but it's basically the west side of Seattle, and we we try to do stories that are focused on uh, human interest and on certainly on crime and on uh, uh, land development and things like that, so people can keep in touch with uh, what's going on around them. Perfect, perfect. And so it seems that you guys, just your family in general, has been. This is kind of the 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 family. Uh, legacy is uh, your guys' journalism and all Very that. much so. Very nice. much so, yeah. Nice. My dad passed in 2014, okay. and he was writing for the paper up until three weeks before he died. So that tells you something. <laughs> I feel right he kept degree. working, and uh, so we all keep working. My whole family has been involved in the paper at one time or another. Uh, back in the back in the 50s, uh, we were, as I say, we were at on 17 Southwest, and we used to use a machine called the Linotype machine. The Linotype machine was a typesetting device, very complex uh, device that would use hot lead. So it literally had a melting pot with lead ingots that would hang in it. So you'd have to take those, and that, that hot lead would then get poured into forms to form type characters. And those would go in rows. You'd lay those rows out. You'd then take the cold type, and you'd run ink over them and make your your uh, basic pages up that way. Oh, man. I know. <laughs> I know. Exactly. So we, we actually had a furnace in the back where we'd melt the lead and re-pour the ingots okay. so they could reuse the lead. We'd melt down the old, ty- old uh, uh, pieces of type. And uh, then uh, we led the revolution in uh, uh, going to what they call uh, c- 
computerized or cold types, uh, typesetting with computers in the 60s. And we did the optical character recognition at that time. We actually bought the first fax machines ever made. They were made by Exxon, believe it or not, the oil company. Yeah. We made fax machines. And we bought those and used those. They were very slow, <laughs> very slow machines. But we used them, and we also got into uh, a lot of other areas. Uh, we bought the first rotary offset press west of the Mississippi, installed in White Center on 13th Southwest, okay. and started a company called Rotary Offset Publishing. And that company uh, operated in White Center for a very long time until it moved down to Tukwila in the uh, mid-'80s. Gotcha. And uh, then we started a company called, uh, this is completely off the topic, I guess, but <laughs> we started a company called Artronics uh, that then changed into Digital Post and Graphics. Digital Post and Graphics was downtown in 1921 Minor, okay. and we did computer graphics for television. We did uh, the opening for NBC uh, College Basketball. We okay. Did, we did work for every ad agency there is, every television network there is, a lot of work on MTV and lots of other things like that as graphics and animation for television. And I won a couple of Emmys in the process. Come on. And, <laughs> That's uh, awesome. And uh, I've won many awards as a photographer. I started taking pictures when I was 12 years old. Okay. And uh, then uh, I stopped taking pictures and went to work for digital post and graphics. And then my wife came to me about... Uh, Oh, 12 years ago, she said, you know, you, you won a lot of awards taking pictures. You should do that again. I said, <laughs> I don't know. I, I did all the th things I wanted to do with photography. And yeah. She went out and bought me a camera. Well, that camera failed, uh -huh. so <laughs> I went and got a better camera. Yeah. <laughs> and I started taking pictures and posting them up on social media. Yeah. And the weirdest thing happened, Frank. Huh. Uh, I took the pictures. And I'd post them up, and then I, I would get comments. In the newspaper business, you're usually used to people sending you a letter to the editor, and it shows up with a guy with little short pants and mm -hmm. a cap on, <laughs> he drops it in the box. Yeah. Well, this is the Internet, of course, and so I wasn't used to the instant feedback that, that comes with the Internet. And yeah. So I, I post a picture up, and I, people would say, I'm on chemotherapy, and your picture really helped me. Yeah. Or... They'd say, uh, I've been feeling suicidal. Yeah. And this picture really lifted my spirits. And my God, if you can do that, mm -hmm. if you can do that, that's something to do. Yeah. That's a thing worth doing. It led you back to what? So you... it led me back to taking more pictures. Yeah. And it led me to explore my abilities, and it led me to buy five more cameras. <laughs> <laughs> What's that tell you? That the, the man tells me that you're amazing, man. Well, I don't know about that. But <laughs> it, certainly, it certainly made me buy a lot of cameras. <laughs> that's all I know. My wife bought me a big lens, and I said, okay, whatever. Because I know that you have a lot of experience in several types of media, and so photography is one of them. Is that your favorite? Well, I've, you been a, favorite? I've been a songwriter, an audio producer. I, I wrote jingles for a while. Um, I've done television commercials, lots of radio commercials, uh, done billboards, bus cards, uh, everything. I think but skywriting, I haven't done that. Skywriting, what's that? <laughs> what is that? Well, the airplane writes words oh, in the sky. Gotcha. Oh, in the sky. okay. I haven't done that. You got to do that for that's the Valentine's Day, happy that's, anniversary, yeah, will you marry me kind of deal. Yeah, well, I was already married, so. <laughs> 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 the um, point is that uh, I've done almost every kind of media you can do. Mm -hmm. I guess no, I haven't done major motion pictures. I haven't been involved in that. Gotcha. But I've been involved in lots of television shows and, and lots of TV commercials, things like that. Uh, so is photography my favorite? Photography is the one that gives me the most access to what, what I call flow. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you're a creative person at all and you're in the process of doing what you do as a creative person, whether that's making a pot on a wheel or painting a painting, right? Or working with lasers or whatever it is you do. There's a moment or a time when you enter a state of mind that clears everything else out, where this is the only thing that you're able to think about because this is your focus in that time. In that moment, nothing else matters, yeah. right? So when people come up and talk to me when I'm in that flow state, I don't even hear them, yeah. mm. okay? 
So I like that because it puts me, this is going to sound a little silly, but it puts me in touch with the infinite, yeah. okay? The collective unconscious, if you want to think of it as God or the, the spirit around us, that's what gives me that sense of being connected to it. Yeah. So things flow through me, not because of me, but just through me from wherever else they're coming from. So very often when I go to take pictures, Lisa, what happens is they'll present themselves to me. And people say, how'd you get that picture? I go, I don't know. I have no idea. I was just there and it said, take my pictures. Like, mm -hmm. It's just like tapping me on the shoulder and saying, it's there. So if you look at any of my photographs, you'll, you'll, you'll understand that I'm not really necessarily responsible. Certainly there's a, there's a level of experience or talent or, or just awareness that I bring to it. But most of the time, when it's a picture that has uh, an element of beauty or, or power, it's about it literally saying, here I am, are you going to take me or not? It's like that. Yeah. Not kidding. That's amazing. But yeah. <laughs> Long answer, but that's basically, yeah. yeah. Photography is my favorite for that reason. Uh, that's, what I, that's the sense I was getting when I was going through your photography and just reading more about you. I felt like photography was your, your thing. I want to kind it's of talk one about thing, that. as I said, I've been a songwriter and a poet. Yeah, and I know you do many, a ton more. <laughs> I do a lot of writing. And yeah. Um, so I want to bring it back to White Center. Um, what is your earliest, <clears throat> earliest memory of White Center? My earliest memory of White Center, some of my early memories, let's, go, let's do that. I remember, uh, this is probably not my earliest, but I remember going into White Center to buy my brother uh, who was 16 at the time, and I think I was uh, six, uh, a record at a, the White Center record shop. Mm. So I bought him a Bobby Darren record, and he drove me. <laughs> <laughs> he drove me up there, right? And he said, go get this record, and we'll go home, and I'll act surprised. <laughs> what? And, yeah, I know. <laughs> What a terrible thing to say to a six-year-old. I'm going to teach you how to be deceitful right off the bat. Good life lesson for you. Was it his birthday or something? It was his birthday, okay. yes. It was his 16th birthday. So he drove me up to the White Center Record Shop, which is where uh, the boxing uh, oh. shop was, right in that oh. building. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That suffered in the fire, of course. Mm -hmm. So that's where the record store was, and we went up there and bought it. They were all displayed on a shelf, as records were in those days. Mm -hmm. And uh, I bought him a Bobby Darren record. Yeah. Was he surprised? <laughs> Mac the Knife, by the way, in case you're wondering. Uh, uh, yes, he was really surprised. <laughs> he, he faked surprise to my mom. Wow. He says, wow, thanks, Patrick. <laughs> what a surprise. I've never been able to trust him ever since. You guys are still close. Oh well, we talk. Mm. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Does he like? Does he like a lot of the work that you do? He does. Uh, though he's he's think about that particular brother, uh, uh, whose name is Mike. He's eighty years old, and he's uh, he's an incredibly intellectual guy. Mm -hmm. I mean, so deeply intellectual. He's the kind of guy that if you ask him for an explanation, he'll get right you a chapter in a book <laughs> uh, and seriously he, he knows so much his knowledge is so far ranging and so deep that uh, he can he was a college professor so that tells you okay. and he taught English and journalism and writing and lots of other things okay. he's a gift, very gifted writer and a brilliant poet uh, way better than I'd ever be but uh, I, you know these are people I, I hold in high regard awesome awesome yeah. uh <clears throat> Uh, in your article, White Center on the Cusp of Changing Faces and Uncertain Future, you walk us through a sub-area plan for North Highline that White Center is a part of. Uh, you've highlighted the changes that White Center have experienced over the years, the highs and the lows, and the current state of White Center. Uh, what did you want folks to take away from that article? I wanted people to understand uh, something about the current state of the community mm -hmm. and to get a sense of what is likely to change and to hopefully with that background, armed with that knowledge, if they read it and use it as a reference, because it's a long story. I mean, it's very detailed. 
Uh, several people told me, nice book you wrote. <laughs> I'm glad you read it. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> that's what I said. Uh, the point is that hopefully, armed with that knowledge, you'll, you'll be able to go out and do something to be part of positive change for the community. Yeah. White Center has for a very, very long time suffered from an identity crisis, I think. And not because of its name per se, but because it's always been a lower income community, yeah. right? And that means it's it's always been kind of a scrappy place, always been kind of a tough place, always been a place where uh, people seek solace or refuge in alcohol at some level in some places. Mm -hmm. uh, it's only in the last, maybe the last 20 years, maybe the last 30 has it become more ethically diverse, right? Because in the 50s and 60s, it really was white center, very Caucasian place. Yeah. A very middle of the road, middle America kind of place. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's gone through uh, changes that I think are both healthy and, uh, and uh, damaging at the same time. Yeah. In the sense that because if I've got somebody here speaking Tagalog, and somebody mm -hmm. here speaking Spanish, and somebody there speaking Vietnamese, and somebody there speaking another language, they don't communicate. Mm -hmm. And because they don't communicate, you can't arrive at consensus for any direction going forward. Gotcha. So the diversity uh, doesn't necessarily lend to unified action. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I'm hoping to do, or hoping to see happen out of the sub-area plan is that people will be able to read it in their own language because it does exist in the other languages. And they'll come forward and say, this is what I think we have to have here, and this is what's important to me, and this is what I think is important to the rest of the community as well. Yeah. So it demands a certain level of compassion and empathy from everyone to say, this is what I think, I agree with the, the people from the Vietnamese community to say, Yes, this is what we need. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now I understand that what you need. That's that's useful for me to know that, and I can support you in trying to pursue that goal. Yeah. So to the extent that you're armed with that knowledge, right, and it's not junked up with government speak, mm -hmm. right, full of, well, we're going to do the H3C zoning, what the <laughs> You know, all that stuff that people get confused by because mm -hmm. it's too much and too laden with jargon. Yeah. I wanted to get rid of some of that and explain it in, in very clear terms. Say, here's a section on this and this and this. Now you have some footing to go in and, and go forward together. Yeah. It's meeting the, on the middle ground in a yep. sense and then exactly. progress forward after that. Yep. I like that. Do you have folks coming to you after you write an article, criticism, feedback, or just their thoughts on it? In the community? Yes, yes. Well, you know what happens? The internet is uh, is a place where people, uh, nobody knows you're a dog, yeah. if you know that old expression. Well, what it, may, what it means is Moon Pie 97 writes in, okay. <laughs> what, what the hell? I, how am I supposed to take that person seriously yeah. if they have a criticism or even if they have something to say, the greatest story ever? Look, your name's Moon Pie. <laughs> Come on. Now, see, the thing about newspapers and the history of the way we've engaged with the community is mm -hmm. that you can't be anonymous. Mm -hmm. uh, you can request anonymity, but I need to know, oh, yeah, it's that same guy that wrote to me three weeks ago. He's, a, he's, he's absolutely an adamant supporter of this or that, right? I understand where you're coming from politically. I understand what your point of view is. Now I know you are. If it's if you're afraid of recriminations or something, you request anonymity. Okay, name withheld by request. Fine, but you can't do it on the internet, yeah. or if you did, whatever. So what I'm what I've done is I've disabled the comments on our site. Okay. Uh, we still get comments on uh, Facebook, uh, but sometimes I find I have to disable them there too. No. Because there's. <laughs> So many people uh, have diarrhea of the keyboard mm -hmm. and, and, and want to just go off on stuff. Mm -hmm. And so many people have s such virulent points of view about things, mm -hmm. especially without knowledge. Yeah. And that's something that I can't abide by. If you're, if you're speaking from knowledge and a place of experience, I'll listen to you, absolutely. Mm -hmm. 
because that tells me that you've done your homework and you're not just spouting off and, yeah. and making assertions or claims. Newspapers and training in journalism taught me that you have to have reliable sources that you can trust, that you know, that are multiple, that have a uh, level of credibility. Mm -hmm. right? we, what we've lost is we've lost the, the uh, credibility factor in so much of what's going on in, in human discourse because the internet has debased it, right? It's all become uh, a, a rabble of people screaming at each other. We don't accomplish anything. And so it's, it's hurt the nation in many ways. And that's boiled down to even the local level where we all scream at each other and nobody gets anything done. It's ridiculous. <laughs> that's uh, when I think about, um, when I think about the newspaper versus like an article that I see on Typically, it would be Facebook or Twitter or anything. It's almost like a place <laughs> where you, uh, like, I've wrote it, it's going in the paper, and then people can say what they want, but it's already out everywhere now at this point and everything. And to, do you feel that um, come from more of an opinionated standpoint or, like, just want to make, like, a neutral a uh, neutral article and I have people decide. Depends on the stuff. subject, obviously. I'll give you an example. You're, you're mm -hmm. familiar with the West Seattle Bridge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was, okay, that was, that was going to be my, that was on my list to ask you about, yes. Yeah, I'm a psychic too. Yeah. <laughs> I've been a gift. Right? <laughs> anyway, the point is that uh, I've, been, I've done God, several hundred articles about the West Seattle Bridge and its current status and how, how it broke and what what happened to it and why it happened and all that stuff. But I also have written editorial pieces that say, we need a forensic engineering study on this thing. If we're going to pay $175 million, I want to know exactly why that thing broke. I want to know exactly what happened. It's not good enough to say, well, the, the post-tension steel cabling got too long. What? Okay. We didn't know as much <laughs> about concrete in those days, which is, those are two things they literally said. <laughs> so Why'd I, you build it? <laughs> I understand. So I, I, lit, I wrote a, a story, uh, actually I wrote to Bruce Harrell, and I said, uh, when he was a candidate, I said, would you endorse the idea of uh, having a forensic engineering study done on the bridge so we can learn exactly why the bridge failed, so we don't repeat this problem with any other bridge or any other project we do going forward? He said, absolutely, I'm, I'm behind that. I will try and get a forensic engineering study done. Okay, campaign promise. Believe me, I'm going to hold him to it. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> because it, it really does need to be done. It's yeah, not good enough for excuses. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question more directly, Frank, the, the way it works is if I've got a set of facts from a reliable source, and if it's, for example, people may doubt this, but I don't necessarily think the police make things up too much, so I'm going to let them say what they want to say. Here's what happened. If somebody else comes to me and says, that's not what happened, well, I'm going to check it out and say, okay, is there anybody else that saw what you saw that you can tell me, or do you have video of this or pictures of this that back up your claim that that's what really happened and the police are not telling me the truth? Then I'll publish that. But it has to be credible and sourced and reliable and provable. It has to be real. It can't be made up, and it can't be somebody saying, well, that's not what, oh. <laughs> that doesn't fly. Yeah. So he, there was a really, really uh, great piece uh, written by uh, uh, President Obama, uh, somebody that I have in, enormous respect for, just a brilliant, brilliant guy. And he talked about a, a thing called epistemology, right? Well, epistemology means that you trust the source you're getting the information from. That's, it's a trusted source. We've lost that focus in our, in our media. It's just gone. And one of the things that happened was that in, in 1986, Ronald Reagan was president. And we had, up until he was president, a thing called the Fairness Doctrine. Well, the Fairness Doctrine said, you must present both sides of the issue. You must present both candidates, right, and with equal time and all that, right? Well, that was removed. It was struck down. And after that, what rose was talk radio, right? And talk radio was seeking a means to keep all those radio stations afloat. 
And so they went with hate and fear. And so you find all these people that are on the radio screaming at you about one thing or another, and they're all angry. Oh, yeah, I'm angry too. Okay, so all these, all these people sitting out there that want to hear an echo chamber of their own beliefs, that's what they listen to. Okay, got it. Then that gave rise to Fox News and One America Network. And uh, there's, what's the other one that's out there? The point is that all of these opinionated, opinion-driven uh, broadcasting outlets or cable casting outlets uh, don't really give you much news. They give you their opinion, right? So in traditional newspaper terms, we have news, we have a feature, here's the cute puppy, right? And, okay. <laughs> and then here's, here's sports, and we have opinion, okay? okay? So the walls between those things are pretty clear. Mm -hmm. uh, the walls will go down in modern media. Yeah. It's a complete mix. You figure it out. Is this my opinion? Mm -hmm. Or is this news? Yeah. Am I telling you a fact? Or am I telling you an assertion that I think must be true? Yeah. <laughs> no, People it follow doesn't fly suit. with me. <laughs> I, I, I just refuse to engage in that kind of conjecture or assertion. I just won't do it. Can you tell us uh, some of the favorite White Center stories you've written about? Well, since I go back to the early 50s, we, uh, and there's a famous picture out there that's on the, it's actually on Facebook. The, uh, we uh, did stories about the flapjack race. Flapjack race. Never heard of that. Run down the street and flip a pancake. Yeah. I have never heard of that. <laughs> oh, well. That's a, that's a pretty uh, 1950s uh, white America thing to do. On 16th or 1st? On 16th, yes. Yeah, yeah. There's a picture in the uh, archives, Seattle Municipal Archives, taken by the Post-intelligence, or uh, PI now, as you call it, uh, uh, that's online. I think it's on, it's on the Facebook page, uh, Rat City Business Owners. I think they have that as their, their title picture. And it's a great shot. It's wonderful. Uh, see a lady in a long skirt flipping a pancake. She's running down the street. <laughs> it's hilarious. Okay. I'm going to look that stuff. up. Uh, but we, uh, one of the things that... Uh, We've written a lot about uh, uh, Mel Olson Field because I knew Mel Olson, uh, and I, and uh, we've written about. Uh, uh, let me think. I could just tell you some other memories rather than stories per se. I remember that where the Lotus Cafe is. The Lotus Cafe. It's a vegetarian uh, cafe. Oh, I know where that is. It's uh, right across from Super Savers. Right? It's across from the car wash. Car wash, oh, and then where, uh, um, there's the, a little there's, Caesars, there's right? Little Caesars yeah. in the yeah. same building. Then that, well, that used to be a spot used to be Lou's Drive-In. Okay. Lou's now back in the '50s and early '60s, believe me, Lou's was the place. <laughs> yeah, because they had 19 cent burgers. Ah, uh, 19 cents. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so my family would often go to Lou's for a, a burger or two, and uh, they had Green River, which is the Green drink in a big, big cooler with uh, would flow the liquid up into it and keep it cool. Uh, and this is long before uh, the soda pop companies demanded uh, space on their shelves and ground out everybody else. And uh, uh, there was a, an attorney that worked in White Center named Norman Ackley, and Norman Ackley was a was a very interesting fellow. He drove an MG. 1958 MG convertible, and uh, I remember we were at Lou's one time, and he says, you want to go for a ride? And I said, sure. So I was literally on the back of his car, back where the spare tire was mounted, uh -huh. driving down 16th Avenue Southwest at about 40 miles an hour. <laughs> Not a good idea. Just saying. Oh, stories, man. Uh, to touch on one of the stories that I did write recently, which is on the podcast as well and also on, in the paper, my dad, for some reason, uh, was an inveterate float maker. He, he, we, in 1962, we, uh, we used to go out to uh, uh, what is now called, uh, the, used to be called, it's called Magnuson Park, but at the time it was a naval uh, air hangar. Sandpoint? And by Sandpoint. By Sandpoint, exactly gotcha, right. gotcha. And 
they had access to these airplane hangars, and we made floats for parades. And the floats were made with wire and chicken wire and a plywood frame over a car, right? Or just a car frame, you take the body off, and then you had just a frame beneath it. And we would take chicken wire, build it over the, the plywood frame, and then we'd take Kleenex. And you'd wind the wire around Kleenex to form a flower, right? And then you made several thousand of those dang things. Right? <laughs> when you're a kid, your fingers get tired pretty fast doing wire. <laughs> Just twisting those oh, things. Yeah. And then you wire them onto the frame. So you don't want it to rain. Yeah. Just saying. <laughs> it's all over. Not exactly a waterproof road. Yeah. Not a good idea. <laughs> but we won the uh, Torchlight Parade for best... Uh, Parade, best float on the parade that year, 1962. And it was really a mark of pride for my father and my family because White Center had been sort of a hard scrabble place up to that point. And, and uh, then was, at that point, it was, really, it was really a nice community and all the sidewalks were beautiful, all the stores were busy and open. We had men's, men's store and a hardware store, and drugs, a couple of drug stores and barbers. And it was, it was a bustling, happy place. And uh, very low crime, and uh, we, we, I was very proud of, of White Center as a place at that time. Uh, but then uh, the 60s started to see it change a little bit as the, uh, as the economy changed, and people started moving down to Burien, and you saw a few more empty storefronts, and the land values dropped a little bit, and uh, it began to evolve. And... Uh, and as soon as you have lower land values, people who, who need to or have lower income, they move in because they can. That's what they can afford. And it's, it, there's nothing wrong with that per se, uh, but it does tend to create a, a, a place where that stays at that value because things don't get improved. You're not going to the bank to get a $100,000 loan to improve your house because you can't pay the $100,000 loan to improve your house. So it's like that. And things tend to stay in that condition until they are changed by outside forces. And that's sort of what's happening with the sub-area plan to try and improve the community. Do you have maybe a story that was more tougher to write about, White Center, like one that you knew you had to write about that, but was difficult for you to write? Do you ever have those types of stories? I know there's the fun stories. Are there ones that you want to communicate to the community? But it's just well, like I know a, that I know there was a story about the, uh, a young man uh, named Byron Kinghammer uh, who was uh, trying to cross the road out on 128th because he was uh, a student at Puget Sound Junior High, which is where the Albertson store is out there now. Really? Yeah. Over there, I want Puget Sound Junior High. That's where I went to seventh grade. Gotcha. It's been torn down since. Um, but he was trying to cross the road and somebody hit him and he died almost instantly. So the newspaper mounted a campaign to build a uh, overpass, a pedestrian overpass. And that pedestrian overpass is there to this day. Yeah. Now it used to be a little candy store across the street where we would dash across the road to go get our candy mm -hmm. from Puget Sound. And uh, that's what happened to him. He died as a result. So Newspaper was centrally important in getting that done. Yeah, and that was that was kind of a tough story because he he died. Obviously, we've done stories about Steve Cox, and that mm -hmm. was a very tough story because mm -hmm. uh, he was a remarkable guy. Yeah, amazing man, a super dedicated guy, and a just a just a really good man. Yeah, just a good guy. I remember in high school we used to like shortly before he died. Uh, we died in was that oh seven. I think so, yeah. yeah, and uh, I remember. I think I saw him one time, and I used to go to the law cabin just one time, <laughs> and uh, yeah. and everybody was just, just like, "Oh, Steve Cox, oh, Steve Cox is him." That's just, <laughs> right. <laughs> that yeah. sweet, you know. Yeah, I no, sad so didn't get a, a chance to really like, um, you know, meet with him in person. A lot of people really loved him. Really gave everybody a, a fair shot. He, he wasn't. He was not prejudiced in any way, and he gave you a, the shirt off his back. He was just a really good human being, and so to see him get killed in such a 
terrible way by such a bad person. It's just, that's tragic. I guess we feel in, inside White Center has a similar mission as yours since we aim to be the documentators of White Center stories. Uh, what advice would you give to us in terms of just you know going forward with what we do and stuff like that? I would think that if you're going to do podcasts, you're going to have to do two things. Mm. You need to leave this space. <laughs> yeah. You need to go out into the actual community. Yeah. Talk to people on the street, right? And spend time uh, exploring uh, issues in chapter form or in short, shorter form stories, My, meaning, uh, for example, I did a story about the uh, about the lady that was, or I don't want to say lady, I'll, I'll say they, because that's apparently the right way to say it. Uh, the trans person that was breaking all the windows, and uh, so I talked to the uh, talked to Donna Chan at uh, Macarons, w wonderful person over uh, there by the crawfish house. Yeah, the white center. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, gotcha. Well, that person was coming through it in all kinds of times of day and night, just smashing out windows. Yeah. And it was happening at the uh, roller rink, and it was happening at Macarons. It was happening uh, lots of other places. And so at some point, uh, I believe Inside White Center needs to go and talk to people on the street and say, tell us about your, your thoughts about crime in White Center. What can we do to curb it? How do we make it better? How do we improve things? Talk about uh, how we improve access for people of lower income to, to get the things they need. Uh, talk about uh, food waste coming from all of these places that sell food, what can we do to get them to donate that food to people that are that are uh, hungry or, or at food banks? I don't know how much is being done now, but that's something that you could explore and, and shine a light on. Uh, I think you need to uh, think about uh, uh, telling uh, uh, stories with children's voices, because children have a different perspective on things than adults do, and it's they who will shape what's coming in the future anyway. And it's important to, to acknowledge that they have a validity and, and, a, and a voice that needs to be heard as well. You want to see what they, what they think and what they, how they feel about things. Uh, uh, for example, how, how, do, how does crime affect a kid? When they, when they hear about somebody getting shot in the head in White Center, it's it's not like they don't get it. They get that somebody's been killed. How does it affect them? What do they carry? What do they what do they remember from this? Mm -hmm. do, do, are they afraid to walk out on the street? Does it scare them? I'd like to know. Yeah. And that's something that you guys can do better than than I can do it, because you have you have a team of people. You have an ability to record, an ability to edit, an ability to speak in human voices that uh, a newspaper sort of doesn't. Uh, I think you should uh, uh, talk to individuals who are on their way up, just as I mentioned about Glendall. I think Glendall's, I think he's going to be a star. I really do. If he keeps going, and I think he will, he's going to be amazing. I met a gentleman named Aaron Jones. you know who Aaron Jones is? I don't. You should. <laughs> you should know who he is. Look him up. Yeah. Aaron Jones just opened for the Rolling Stones. Oh. He lives on Alki. What? Yes. Oh, yeah. Aaron is a killer. Yeah, he's, he's a three. Oh, God. <laughs> he, he is. When you hear him play the guitar, you go, oh, my God, man. I saw him in concert about five years ago. He was, okay. He's gotten better since yeah, then. He's gotten better since then, and he's just, oh, my he's God. On, he's on Elk. I, can't, I couldn't believe he got better, but he did. He's good. Oh, he's amazing. He's a guitarist? He's a guitarist and a singer. He's got a couple of albums out. As I say, he's... Uh, I think he's, he's. I know he's on tour. I just saw his, his post that he's on tour again. Is uh, he in the community? What's that? Is he in the community? Yeah, he's in West, he's in, he lives in, on Alka, as I said. What I'm getting at is you have people here that have a great talent. Yeah. And they're tremendous visual artists, tremendous uh, uh, musicians, and, and other people that 
whose art needs to be uh, explored and, uh, and applauded mm -hmm. and promoted. And you have an opportunity to do that. And not only would it help them, but it help you. Because talking to artists gives you insight into how they see the world and how they express themselves. It's good for you to hear it. Yeah, we, we definitely recognize that. Um, we want to get better every time, and we appreciate any advice that you can give us. Um, but we do want to showcase like the voices in the community. You bet. And that is a great idea to um, go out on the street and just talk to somebody who maybe is just you know an everyday person in the community. What are their thoughts? I definitely like the idea of um, bringing uh, younger voices on, too, to see what their perspective is. Um, and we do have access to that. Um, but, yes, that is our... Uh, hope to be able to expand more and make sure that we are um, collecting, being inclusive of all the voices that are in the community and not just what we select. We want um, anybody who wants to be able to tell their story, that they know that they have a, a place on our podcast mm. to tell it. I'd also think it would be uh, useful to, for you to talk to people with money and power. Mm. Okay, and The reason for that is the guy that owns, for example, Beer Star, mm -hmm. okay, he's he's got a certain amount of money. He he spent a hundred thousand dollars on the roof of that building. Yeah, so he's not exactly hurting for cash. <laughs> he, he's doing fine, yeah. but he's in a position to make a difference in the physical structure of the community with one guy doing it. One guy can do that, but he's a good guy. I've talked with him several times. Talking about the boat. Yep. These are nice people, and some of them, you know, they come at things differently because they have the money, because you'd expect that. But he's not unapproachable at all. He's a good guy. Uh, I'd like to see you talk to Justin Klein. I'd like to see you talk to uh, the, the owners of the, the Roll Pod, because mm. uh, mm. uh, I did a story about them. They're really fascinating people. They're amazing people. Yeah. Are they They're, a chain restaurant? Well, they have two of them. Two. They have a truck. They just they, opened up two, I believe. They, they just recently opened the White Center location. Yeah. But they have one over in Eastgate, and they have a food truck. But they're, they're former software developers. <laughs> oh. Oh, yeah. Okay. Software developers from India, and they came here, and they opened up a, a food truck. That went so well, they opened up a location in Eastgate. That went so well, they opened one in White Center. So good people to talk to. And how do, how do people go about establishing a business in a community like White Center, what sensitivities do they have to have? What uh, what sort of economic forecast do they have individually? Did they do a study on the demographics? Did they look at the potential sales that they could do? That kind of stuff. I just did a story in the lumber yard. Uh, talked to the guy at the lumber yard and very, very nice guy. Very sweet fella uh, that owns it. I don't know if you know those people. Yeah. But uh, I walked in and took a picture of the area in the back where that used to be a bank mm -hmm. and they've got a the walls are about a foot and a half thick yeah. where the vault used to be and I, it occurred to me I'm looking at it, I'm thinking you know people are breaking into the bizarro to get the booze <laughs> right which they did for a long time that one guy was doing it uh, if they broke in that place they're not getting in the vault <laughs> good place to keep the booze if there you're going to go. sell it <laughs> what the hell not a bad idea not a bad anyway, idea I, I see all the murals in White Center. I've always thought murals are a great idea. Yeah. I, some of them are just so great. The one of the fish on 16, uh, on Roxbury. Yeah. She did a tremendous job. Oh. I, Isn't I mean, that a great mural? Um, yeah, I actually bought a postcard uh, of that mural at did the... Did you? Um, oh, that's, what that's cool. What is the museum called? The oh. Hispanic one? Oh, over in, um, in South Park? It's by the flower shop. You guess what it's called? Oh. What is it called? Is yeah. But it's a Hispanic oh, yeah. uh, art museum, keep, uh, and I, I bought I bought the postcard of it, and I know which one you're talking about. Yeah, that yeah, one's that's beautiful. Really she does amazing work. She's amazing, tremendous talent. Yeah. I talked to her, and I'm, I'm watching her paint. She's not even looking at it. She's talking to me. <laughs> How are you doing that? <laughs> she's she's so good, so confident that she knows the line she's mm -hmm. going, and she just paints it. Okay, whatever. Yeah, you're not good. Okay, got it. <laughs> Uh, and then the guy that uh, that did the mural over on uh, 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 Meet the Light Butcher. Oh, yeah. The, the animals. Mm -hmm. Really cool. That's great. 
and some of the some of the more street inflected uh, hip hop kind of art looks great. Yeah, looks terrific. It's 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 right for the white center. It looks good. It's definitely and, in it's our bright vibe. colors and bold bold expression. It looks great. Yeah, it's terrific. I like it a lot. I definitely I saw that as like a step up for us when when we finally got people from within. You know, the one community of the things that I told that. that I told the people at King County was, I would love to see us fight graffiti by having thematic colors in the community. And I, I told them, what if you, if you have, you know, there's a place called Burano, Italy. And I would like you to look it up. Burano, B-U-R-A-N-O, Burano, Italy. And in Burano, that community took, and there are other communities in the world like this, they said, okay, your building is going to be yellow, yours is going to be orange, yours is going to be blue, yours is going to be uh, bright red. And all of the community has primary colors, all these beautiful, giant, these super, super bright colors, right? So when you go there, it becomes a community of color, yeah. which is white center. Exactly. So it makes it a place you want to go just to see it, mm -hmm. just to see it, right? Uh, I really think white center's identity needs to be something that draws people to it gives people a sense of, I come from that place, yeah. right? I come from that place that I'm proud of, right? I want to have that unified feeling and identity that you can look at and say, I know what that place, yeah. it's that place with all the colored buildings, right? And white is the unification of all colors, mm -hmm. right? Black is the absence of all colors. Mm -hmm. White is all of them together. So white center. Yeah. Yeah. I'm about it. Yeah. Yes. I yes. think anytime I encounter a person and they ask me where I'm from and I say White Center, and if I, I get any sense that they're going to down talk White Center, I think we all get really defensive. Like, you don't know <laughs> oh, White yeah, Center. Up. <laughs> I was like, excuse me. And I think you get a lot of that from people who grew up in White Center. We're very proud of where we come from. Mm -hmm. Well, you know why it's that way? Because the community is so tight. We, well, the, in terms of the response, yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. But the we, reason they feel that way is that we're, we're all conditioned to take the most adrenaline-provoking news and internalize that and say, oh, shootings. Okay? Mm -hmm. I know where those happen. Mm -hmm. Okay. The problem is that that's not the day-to-day -day reality of the community at all. Know. Of course, it's, of course it's not. Nobody, yeah. nobody would live here if it was. Yeah. You'd leave. This is in Kosovo. Mm -hmm. we're, in of, we're in the middle of a war. Yeah. Come on, we're not in downtown, uh, uh, what's it called, Baghdad, mm -hmm. right? That's not, not how we live. But people tend to look at the news media in general and go, okay, what's the most alarming thing? And the news media does that itself. Mm -hmm. One of the things, to come back full circle, what we were talking about earlier, News media in the last 10 years especially has become ever more desperate to get your attention. Mm -hmm. So television stations, newspapers, radio stations, all of them, they all have smaller staffs. They all want to tell you the most alarming thing, right? The most lurid thing. And then the head rolled down the street. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that detail. I don't think I needed that. Yeah, yeah. But they want to tell you that or show you the video. Mm -hmm. And here's that video clip again. Mm -hmm. And the video clip shows 15 times. Yeah. Okay, well, I think I'll start out the first 14 times. Thanks. Yeah. But the point is that they're trying to do that because they're trying to hold on to you as a viewer so they can sell you some soap or sell you a car mm -hmm. or sell you some medication you don't need. Yeah. Right? That's the media fighting for its survival because everybody's time has been taken away by video games, by uh, earbuds, mm -hmm. by uh, all kinds of things yeah. that distract you from uh, what they used to have a lock on. Yeah. Right? It used to be three channels. Right? Then I went to 500 and everybody kind of went, what? <laughs> what do we do now? Yeah. Right? And then everybody had a website. Now everybody's got a Facebook page. So the barrier to entry for publishing is a phone, mm -hmm. right? And those can be free. There are no barriers to publishing anymore. Yeah. You can publish anything you want. This podcast is an example, right? You can publish anything you want because it's relatively easy to do. Yeah. Okay? Gaining a larger audience is only likely if you have something that draws people to you. Yeah. For example, if you guys were to interview Eddie Vedder instead of me, 
you'd have more people listening. Because he has a bigger name. Yeah. Right? The point is that because everybody is so desperate, it increasingly leads to desperation uh, and the way they express the stories they tell. And uh, it makes people get the wrong impression about things. Yeah. Right? So even though there were a lot of murders in Chicago, people still live there and go to lunch there and get married there and go out on boats there and live their lives. Yeah. Okay. Are there a lot of murders? Probably. But it doesn't affect most people. Yeah. Any more than any crime in White Center affects most of the people that live here. Definitely. So people get the wrong impression about White Center, and that's unfortunate. The media doesn't tell the regular stories. And one of the things you guys can do is do that. Tell the regular stories about regular people, what they think of how they got here, how they came here. How, how, do the, how, do, how, do people, how does the Vietnamese community come to find a place in White Center? Mm -hmm. And how do, how do they get along with the other cultures that are here? And how do you communicate with the other cultures? How, it's, it's, I'm, I'm looking at an African-American and a, and a Vietnamese person. How did you guys, guys get to be friends? <laughs> how did that even happen? Yeah. Right? But that's wonderful that you are. It's, it's, it, it makes me feel great. I walk down and say, look at all these great people. They're all getting along. This is what it's about. Yeah. So tell that story. I want to know. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, I think that's the end of our time here. And uh, we just really appreciate, you know, having such a, this, uh, I just feel that you are an innovator of, you know, of what, you know, of what people know and what you do and, and how people have access to you and in your work and your family's work. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's amazing stuff. And we really appreciate you having you on the show and sharing your perspective. Um, I think one last thing to ask before we go out uh, is, you know, in terms, of, in terms of access, you know, how, what's the best ways of people to get access to you? And just a few. Well, there's. Words. Don't come to my house. <laughs> my wife would get upset. <laughs> anyway, to answer your question, uh, go to westsideseattle.com. Mm -hmm. uh, you can see us there. Uh, we're on Facebook, of course. We're on Twitter, uh, but we maintain the other brands for West Seattle Herald uh, also on Facebook. Gotcha. You can hear my podcast, Patrick Robinson Points of View. Uh, that's on all all uh, podcast platforms, on even even on Spotify. Nice, I know that's, that's where I was. Even though I'm <laughs> thinking of pulling it just to hurt them. Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I got that. Out. <laughs> Me and Neil Young, we're, we're like this. Uh, <laughs> there's that, and then of course you can see my photography on PatrickRobinson.net. That's my uh, website. Go cool. look at my pictures. Perfect. And uh, I'm probably someplace else. God knows where. I've got work everywhere, all across the nation. Awesome. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much yeah, again, thank Patrick. Thank you again. And uh, yeah, that's going to be it for this episode. Thank you all for listening. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>